right. Good morning, Creekside. Uh, my name's Steve. So good to be with you all this morning. Um, Pastor Mark is away in Mexico visiting some missionaries and some ministries that we support there. And when Mark was trying to find someone to come up here and kick off Advent, he said to himself, you know, Creekside has a lot of good things going for it these days, but there's one thing that it lacks. It's not enough Canadians coming up here and preaching on Sundays. So you got me. If any of you have any misgivings or upset about that, the only thing I have to say is sorry. I'm just <laughs> terribly, terribly sorry about that. Um, okay, well, today marks the first Sunday of Advent, which is a season of anticipation leading up to Christmas. So the word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, meaning arrival or appearing. It's a season where we celebrate Jesus' arrival, his Advent, as a baby born in Bethlehem. However, within historic Christian worship, Advent season is not only a time where we reflect on Jesus' first Advent, his first appearance as a baby, but it's also a season where we practice the anticipation of Jesus' second Advent, his second coming at the end of the age. And this is how it works. Um, has your favorite movie or book ever come out with a sequel? Maybe that sequel is supposed to be bigger and better than the first. And to build anticipation before the second one gets released, what do we do, right? We often rewatch or reread the first version, the original. So one of my favorite all-time movies is Dune. Came out in 2021. It's a sci-fi movie. It's based on Frank Herbert's sci-fi novel, the same name. And Dune 2 is sent to come out early next year. And I've got a group of like-minded friends uh, in my Gospel CUNY group, generally sitting over here. Um, and, and we're all really excited for Dune 2, but we're already planning on getting together right before its release and watching the first one. And we do this to build anticipation and excitement before watching the sequel, and also to get caught up on the storyline. Like, where did the last one, where did the original, where did the first one leave off, and then where, where is the second one going from there on out? And this is what we do during Advent. We look back at Jesus' first coming to build anticipation for Jesus' second coming. Together, we relive and reenact what it must have looked like for Israel to wait for the Messiah. And just as Israel eagerly waited for the coming of Jesus, we now eagerly wait for a second coming. You know, additionally, Advent helps us get oriented to where we are in God's storyline, right? Helps us see that we live in between the two Advents, in the midst of the tension of the way that things are and the way that things ought to be. There's this already, not yet, dimension of the kingdom of God that we live in. So Jesus has come to give us a new hope. In this world, there's still so much hopelessness. Jesus has come as the Prince of Peace, yet we still experience conflict. Jesus has come so that our joy may be made complete, yet we still live with deep sadness. And God so loved the world that he gave his only son, yet lovelessness seems to reign freely. And this is the tension of Advent. And over the coming weeks, we're going to step into this tension by highlighting the four Advent themes. So hope, peace, joy, and love. And through our worship and liturgy, through sermons and stories, we're going to ask, what does it look like to live in between the two Advents? How do we embody hope, peace, joy, and love in the already not yet tension of Jesus' arrival? You know, every year in historic Christian worship, Advent begins in the dark. Just as the days outside are getting much shorter and darkness seems to be overtaking our waking lives, Advent is a season where we learn how to lament the darkness and brokenness that remains in our world. So the light of Jesus has dawned, yet there still seems to be darkness everywhere. 
And Advent summons us to take inventory of the darkness because it's hard to see how bright the light shines unless we first look into the dark. And if you turn on the TV or open up a news app, it's not hard these days to take inventory of the darkness. Since Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022, there have been an estimated half a million casualties. That's about twice as many people as the combined population as Roseville, Rockland, and Lincoln. And many experts believe that the casualty numbers are well underestimated. However, this devastation in Ukraine has been recently overshadowed by this, uh, by in the news cycle by the Israel-Hamas war, which has taken over 15,000 lives since October. Some news outlets are um, saying that approximately 70% of those are women and children. There's still numerous hostage, hostages uh, still in captivity. And the New York Times recently interviewed a doctor in Gaza who said that they have been flooded with patients every single day. The whole hospital staff have been working around the clock, sleeping only periodically whenever they can find a free bed. The doctor being interviewed broke down in anger after describing how two pregnant women were brought into the hospital the day before and ended up passing away. The doctor then tried to save the woman's unborn children but was unsuccessful. The doctor said, I cry when I go to sleep. I cry when I'm awake. This is a bad dream. I just want to wake up. Locally, here in Sacramento, uh, Christian uh, music uh, artist Lauren Daigle just played a big concert down at Golden One Center. And about 4 p.m., in broad daylight before the concert, a man who's experiencing homelessness was attacked uh, by someone that he knew right outside the arena, right in the Doco area, and died of his wounds. As people were leaving the concert, maybe some of you went to that concert, as people were leaving the concert, they had to step around the crime scene um, and could see some of the evidence of the attack right there on the ground. So Lauren Daigle, she's known for optimistic, hopeful music, and so often we can expect our Christian lives to be like going to a Lauren Daigle concert. Um, it's just always up and to the right, but Advent takes us outside the arena to the crime scene to see all the brokenness that still remains in the world. I know that even closer to home, many of us here at Creekside may be experiencing a dark season right now. So we just passed Thanksgiving, we're moving into Christmas, there may have been an empty seat at the dinner table of someone who had been there last year. Uh, maybe you've had a relationship or even a marriage fall apart. Maybe it's a diagnosis, miscarriage, job loss, or financial trouble. Advent is not a season where we try and soothe our pain with Christmas lights, decorations, and gifts. We don't just put on a smile and pretend like everything's fine. Rather, Advent is a season where we take time together to look directly into the heart of darkness. However, I know that for many of you, life's actually going quite well, and that's like really good. And honestly, that's the case for me. Uh, this past year has been the happiest and healthiest in my entire life. Uh, right before Thanksgiving, my dishwasher broke down, and that's like the hardest thing I've had to deal with in my life recently. Uh, so for those of us who are feeling up, why should we take time to stare into the darkness? Like, shouldn't Advent and Christmas just be a time of celebration? Like, I don't want to have to get up here and be the Christmas Grinch and, like, steal away all your Christmas cheer. Like, why, why are we doing this? I want you to imagine yourself walk, walking into a large room, maybe a room like this one, but it's pitch black. Maybe you're hanging outside in the church backyard um, out there. It's the middle of the day, it's sunny, but you decide to take a step through those doors just over there into this dark room. If you take a quick look into the dark room, you might think, oh, there's nothing in here. It's pitch black. But if you stare into the darkness long enough, your eyes will start to adjust. 
and all of a sudden you notice that there's actually, you know, there's actually quite a few people in here. And you start to see that there may be, there's some people in here who are from our church. And then you start to recognize a coworker, or you see a parent from your kid's baseball league. You know, and as you look to the darkness even more, as your eyes adjust, you may begin to see that some of your friends are in here. And it looks like they've been in here in the darkness for quite a long time. So within my gospel community group here at Creekside, uh, we often begin our time with someone sharing their story. And those times, uh, those testimony times have been powerful, but it's shown us that we really don't know what's going on in a person's life. We've seen that many people in our group have experienced a lot of pain that we knew nothing about. So Advent helps to adjust our vision, to help us see those around us who are hurting. It teaches us to weep with those who weep. Advent is a season where we all together, right, those who are up, those who are down, look directly to the heart of darkness and we ask the hard questions. In preparation for today, I leaned heavily on the sermons of Fleming Rutledge. Got it up here. Uh, she's Episcopal minister, well-known for her incredible preaching and her masterful book on Advent. Um, it's posted up there. In one of her sermons, Rutledge gives a stark illustration of what it means for us to ask the hard questions. She writes that in 1996, two young girls in Belgium went missing, and no one knew what happened. So many people from all over Belgium gathered to pray, asking God to protect the girls and bring them home safely. But tragically, the girls' bodies were found in a basement, having been starved by an incredibly evil man. The priest, who was conducting the funeral for one of the girls, began shaking as he recalled all those prayers made to God, all the prayers asking God to protect the girls. And in a voice of intense anger, he said, Is the good Lord deaf? That is an Advent question. And Fleming Rutledge says, Perhaps that is the Advent question. God, why didn't you answer our prayers? Why do you let this evil happen? I know of your goodness and mercy, Jesus. Why didn't you intervene? Have you ever asked these questions to God? For many of us, these questions seem too impious or impolite to express to God. It doesn't feel very respectful or honoring. Yet we see these types of petitions throughout the Bible and especially in the Psalms. Here's Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Right? This is the same prayer that the priest asks. There's vulnerable people out there. There's the poor out there. Why are you hiding yourself? Why aren't you protecting those people? Or Psalm 88. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? So the word soul in Hebrew is nefesh, and it literally means your throat. And so just as the cries, just as the prayers are coming out of his throat, he's saying, God, why do you cast those cries? Why do you cast those prayers away? Why do you cast my very self, my soul, away from you? Why do you hide your face from me? Or in Psalm 89, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Throughout the Bible, um, the idea of God's wrath is primarily him taking his protective hand away from a situation and just allowing the evil of the world to consume itself. So he's saying, why do you hide yourself forever? Why do you take your protective hand away? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old by which your faithfulness you swore to David? Or finally, Psalm 22. This is a psalm that Jesus himself quoted when he was on the cross, that he poured out to God while he was on the cross. 
It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the psalm continues, why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. If you've been around church for a while, you know that yes, like God does answer our prayers, and we know that he has a plan, but when you're in the darkness, you don't always experience that way. At the very bottom of the pit, it's hard to imagine how darkness could ever be part of God's plan. The season of Advent is not about finding reasonable answers to life's toughest questions or reciting short Christian cliches. Rather, Advent is about learning how to process our pain with God and experience the real depth of hope that we have as Christians. One of the most powerful communal laments found in the Bible is in Isaiah 64. This is going to be our anchor verse, and you can turn there in your Bibles, and we're going to have it up on the screen, so Isaiah 64. And for hundreds of years in Christian history, this passage was the very first reading of the season of Advent, and it portrays the backdrop of Jesus' arrival. So the nation of Israel, for context, had been overrun by its enemies. Many of the people had been taken away in Babylon. However, the exile is now over, and they have now returned home, but only to find terrible conditions back in Israel. The temple was destroyed, and the people remained faithless to the covenant. The people are not following in God's ways. And in this context, Isaiah writes this. He says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. The word rend just means tear open. It says, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood, and when fire causes water to boil, to make a name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quake at your presence. So Isaiah laments that God feels so far away. It's like he's hidden somewhere above the heavens. And he calls on God to tear open the skies, to break into our world, into our reality, and to help. God, why are you so far away? Come down, tear open the heavens, and do something. Almost every commentator in this chapter mentions that Isaiah here, he isn't petitioning that God would act in Isaiah's current circumstance or at some moment in Isaiah's future, but rather the writer is looking back to the past and he wishes that God would have done something different. In the original language, the Hebrew goes something like, if only you would have just split open the heavens and come down. The damage is already done. Isaiah is looking at the desolation of his nation, the destruction of the temple, and he thinks how differently things could have been. God, if only you would have acted in power, shaking the mountains, lighting up like a pillar pillar of fire. If only you would have shown your true self and intervened, we wouldn't be in this mess. Our English versions render this verse as a nice, clean, cohesive sentence. However, if you read in Hebrew, the phrases are abrupt, they're disjointed, full of dislocations. The author here isn't worrying about articulating a clean flow of thought. Rather, he's agitated, angry, in pain, just pouring himself out to God. And ultimately, he's asking that same hard question that the priest in Belgium asked, and the same hard question that are recorded in the Psalms. I know you, God, and I know your heart, so why would you let the situation get so desperate without doing anything about it? Once again, have you ever felt that way? You know, the biblical authors, they don't just shove or ignore their feelings. Instead, they fully express themselves to God. They get upset with God at times, but note that they process their emotions with God. So this lament uh, from Isaiah isn't just about God, but it's directed to God. This lament in Isaiah 
um, uh, sorry, God can handle our hard, hard questions, the hard questions that we see here in Isaiah. And so we need to process our pain and our anger with him. And this is where Isaiah found himself when the nation of Israel was shrouded in darkness. The situation had become so desperate that he was only left to lament God's lack of intervention. But the passage continues, says this. From old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No one has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. So here we see a hint of hope, right? Isaiah acknowledges that God does act, but it's for those who wait for him. John Oswald, an Old Testament commentator, he states that to wait for the Lord is to commit the future to God's hands by means of daily living a life that shows that we know his ways of integrity, honesty, faithfulness, simplicity, mercy, generosity, and self-denial. So to wait for God doesn't mean we cloister ourselves away until God acts. It doesn't mean that we're passive, but instead we engage the world fully in God's ways until God acts. So God tears open the heavens for those who joyfully work righteousness and walk according to God's ways. But there's a problem. Israel hasn't lived faithfully to God's covenant, right? They haven't walked according to God's ways. So Isaiah is going to move from lamenting God's inaction towards this communal confession. And it goes like this, starting in verse 5. It says, Behold, you are angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. Shall we be saved? So if God tears open the heavens for the righteous, those who joyfully work righteous in the world, but if Israel's a nation that continues on sinning, shall they be saved? Shall we be saved, it says? We have become like one who's unclean, and all of our righteous deeds like, are like polluted garment. So even the good things that happen end up, uh, end up um, in some sort of death. We all fade like a leaf. Our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. So Isaiah recognizes that we don't just need saving from the darkness out there, but we also need saving from the darkness within. God needs to tear open the heavens and rescue us from ourselves. And maybe you felt like this, right? You're caught up in a cycle of sin, um, or maybe every one of your best efforts still results in the people around you getting hurt. Maybe you come to the end of yourself and feel as though that the only way change will happen is if God steps in. This lament, this feeling, depicts the clearest backdrop that we have for Advent, the coming of Jesus. The only hope for Israel is for God himself to intervene. So Isaiah pleads with God. He says this, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hands. So the only reason why we're a nation, only reason that we are a people, and in humanity we can say the only reason why humanity exists is because God act with the forming of his hands. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people, he says. So he pleads with God. But Isaiah doesn't think, you know, well, maybe the people will turn things around. I can see a possibility that they'll repent and start to live according to the covenant. No, Isaiah's only hope is placed in God to act in a surprising way. And this lament highlights that despite all of our human progress, 
we as humans can't fix the world apart from God's intervention, right? Like we can get more educated, we can strive for world peace, but these wars in Ukraine, right, and in Israel, they just keep erupting around the world. Or we can improve technology and make our lives easier here in America and get more stuff, but then depression rates keep climbing at record levels. Advent reminds us that our only hope is for God to tear open the heavens and come down. And Isaiah wrote this lament in desperation, for he saw the darkness that had overtaken his nation. And similarly, many say that uh, America is experiencing a crisis of despair, a crisis of darkness today. And this is no more apparent than in American youth. According to data released by the CDC earlier this year, 42% of U.S. high school teens in 2021 say they felt persistently sad or hopeless. 42%. 22% seriously considered attempting suicide in, in a previous year. Nearly three in five teenage girls felt persistent sadness in 2021, which is double the rate of boys. However, experts have noted that depression, and se uh, depression symptoms sometimes manifest differently in boys, often through irritability and aggression, and thus might not be fully reflected in the data. The New York Times report that this data is the result of a survey um, that is conducted every two years, and the rates of mental health problems have gone up every report since 2011, reflecting a long-brewing national tragedy only made worse by the isolation and stress of the pandemic. So the people in our culture who are supposed to be most filled with hope for the future, right? High schoolers who have their whole lives ahead of them are feeling the weight of this darkness. Carol Graham, uh, who's a vice president and director of economic studies at the Brookings Institute, a think tank in DC, and she's a professor um, at the University of Maryland, uh, cites this distressing data about high school students from the CDC and states her own conclusion. She says, I have found within my own studies increasing evidence that the most important dimension of well-being to future outcome is hope. We are experiencing a crisis of despair and depression in America, and many experts surmise that at a foundational level, like this doesn't explain everything, but at a foundational level, it's due to a lack of hope. This might be surprising, because we tend to have a low view of help, of, of hope, sorry. We tend to underestimate the power of hope. In our culture, hope is used to describe an optimistic outlook about the future. I hope that the stock market will climb. Or if you're a millennial or Gen Z, I hope that the housing market will crash so I can buy a home. According to our culture, hope is about choosing to see how circumstances could actually work out for the best. However, hope is far more than just wishful thinking or an optimistic outlook. Instead, hope drives our very motivations and character, and it's essential to our overall well-being. This is famously portrayed uh, by Viktor Frankl, there he is, uh, who is a Jewish psychiatrist and he's a Holocaust survivor, he survived the concentration camps. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, I remember reading this in high school, uh, Frankl described how his experience, he described uh, his experience of all the horrors of the concentration camps, and he noticed how different people responded vastly differently despite experiencing similar suffering. So some people in the camps, in the concentration camps, fell into a deep fatalism. And Frankel records how one man, he was certain that they were going to get liberated, they were going to get freed from the camp on a very specific date. However, when that date passed, the man became incredibly ill and died just days after. His immune system collapsed because his hope was crushed. There are others in the camp who similarly gave in to hopelessness and responded by colluding with the Nazi guards against their fellow Jews. They became more and more depraved because of their fatalism. But Frankel noted that there were some in the camp 
that seem to have this superhuman ability to stay buoyant in the midst of the flood of darkness, remaining optimistic and help actually helping others around them. In reflecting on this, Frankel said that the single most important factor in determining how his fellow prisoners endured and survived the Nazi concentration camps was holding on to transcendent meaning and hope. So hope is a matter of life and death. It's electricity that powers how you live your everyday life. So, and very similar to Viktor Frankl's testimony, uh, my son, who is uh, three years old, has to endure the horrors of brushing his teeth every single night. So Elias, he hates brushing his teeth, but he loves dance parties. So his mother and I tell him that if you brush your teeth really well, if you listen to us well, we can have a dance party um, after. And the hope of the dance party, like he's looking forward to the joy of that dance party, um, and it completely empowers him. He brushes his teeth so thoroughly, listens incredibly well, and hope powers his motivation and his character through the very difficult circumstance that he finds himself in every single night. So hope is not just a wish. It's not just optimism, right? Hope is the very engine for our motivation and our character. We can't live without hope. But tragically, many people around us are experiencing a crisis of hope here in America. And the best explanation I've heard is that our crisis of hope stems from our society's secularization. We live in a secular society now. This doesn't explain everything, but a lot, a lot, of, a lot of top thinkers are, are kind of pointing, pointing at this. And I'm going to give you a fair warning. I'm going to nerd out on you uh, for a couple minutes. So if you want to like doze off, look at your phone, like I'm not going to be upset at that. Uh, Pastor Mark, he told me to be myself uh, when I'm preaching, and so I'm going to be a nerd. So here we go. Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor came out with a paradigm-shifting book in 2007 called A Secular Age, which describes what it means for us to live in a secular society today. So many of us believe that living in a secular society means that people more than ever are just choosing not to believe in God. That, that they, they see, they sense God, but they're, but they're choosing not to believe um, um, in God. But Taylor pushes back against that definition and states that secularization fundamentally means that we can't know for sure if God, uh, God exists. It's about contestability, as doubt now pervades every aspect of our society. So we doubt everything um, that com comes to us in our society. And so we hear about God and we hear about uh, heaven and the afterlife, um, we take it into question. So if you grew up in Europe 500 years ago, you have been certain that there is a God and that our actions now determine our eternal fate. But nowadays, if you grow up in Europe or in North America, here in America, you can't know for certain if any form of transcendence exists. It's not that we in America all disbelieve in God, like some of us believe in God, it's that we now have a thin view of God. One of my friends here at Creekside recently said that they really enjoy attending church here, but they can't know for certain if God actually exists. And maybe you've been harboring similar doubts about God and are feeling guilty, thinking that maybe there's something wrong with you. Well, according to Charles Taylor and other prominent thinkers, doubt is just the involuntary outcome of life in our current age. It's the air we breathe, it's the water we all swim in. We don't choose to doubt, Rather, it's an instinctive reflex of living in the modern era. One of my favorite Christian writers, James K. Smith, uh, he's a philosopher, he's a professor at Calvin College, and he says this, even as faith endures in a secular age, so faith isn't going away, faith is enduring in a secular age, believing doesn't come easy. Faith is fraught. It says confession, that is believing in God, is haunted by an inescapable sense of his contestability. We don't believe instead of doubting, 
we believe while doubting. We're all Thomas now. So Smith states that we're all like doubting Thomas, Jesus' disciple. Belief in God now coincides with our doubt. We don't choose to doubt, for it's an instinctive, pervasive, instinctive and pervasive in the modern era. Instead, we have to choose to believe in the midst of our doubts. We have to fight to believe in the midst of our doubts. One of the consequences of um, this uncertainty and contestability is that Americans no longer place their hope in God or in an afterlife. Instead, we primarily put our hope in the here and now of our earthly life. So since we in America can't know for sure if there's a God or a heaven or a hell, why would we base our life choices on something so contestable? Even if Americans did believe in God, that belief is often so thin that we base our decisions on what we know to be certain here. Therefore, the meaning of life in America is to be free to choose to live in such a way that makes us happy now. We have placed our greatest hope and desires on the things of this world. And in this regard, Western secularized societies like those in Europe and North America are utterly unique in human history. In every other culture, for all time, the meaning of life is derived from something outside of ourselves, something that transcends this world. So the idea of honor, or for our ancestors, or for reincarnation, or for God, and for the afterlife. As a result, many prominent thinkers have noted that those of us who grow up in modern Western societies are the least equipped people to handle pain and suffering. The things of this world can't bear the weight of our hope. If all of our hope is based on the circumstances of here and now, darkness is the end of the road. If we have no transcendent hope, if there's no God to tear open the heavens and come down, the inevitable darkness that we experience here leaves us only with despair. And this is what we're seeing across the board in America. So now more than ever, we need a hope that transcends our present reality. We need a hope that's bigger than our politics or science. We need a hope that transcends our 401ks or relationship status or our job stability or our children's success. We need to hope in a God like Isaiah, like Isaiah says, who will tear open the heavens and come down. And this is what Jesus provides us at Advent, right? Jesus provides us when he came in the incarnation as a baby. God broke into human history through Jesus, born as a baby, born in Bethlehem. And during this season, we celebrate Jesus being called Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Matthew 1, the author quotes from Isaiah, saying, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God entered human history to be with us in the darkness. God didn't stay far away in the heavens, but he came down to be with us in the midst of our pain and suffering of this world. He himself died on a cross, right? He experienced the darkness to forgive us of our sin, to deal with the sin that Isaiah talked about, and to connect us to the Father through the Spirit. And because of that, our hope, right, our hope here and now is that nothing, no suffering, no loss of a job, loss of a dream or a family member can take away our access to the loving presence of God in our lives. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us here and now. But look at the way in which Jesus actually arrives at Advent, right? Isaiah imagined that the mountains would quake, that God would come down in a firestorm, but instead it looked more like this. This is an oil painting completed by the Renaissance painter Peter Bruegel in 1566. It's called the census at Bethlehem, and it depicts Jesus' arrival, but reimagined to take place 
in a harsh European winter. I just want to ask, what do you, what do you see in this painting? There's a lot of people kind of going about their day in the snow. Um, some kids are playing up top, um, but there's a bunch of villagers that are crowded around the left looking at something important. Looks like something significant is going on inside that building um, over there. Maybe that's where Jesus is being born and they're, they're, they're crying around, but uh, no, look here. You can see down at the bottom highlighted in yellow, Mary and Joseph arrive with the coming Emmanuel completely unnoticed. So the people are going about their business and their intention is caught up with something else. So the painter wants, wants to portray that the way that Jesus came was kind of in this unnoticed, kind of hidden way. And even as you look at the painting, it's like a Where's Waldo, uh, Where's Waldo book. Like you, you can't even find where they are. It's hidden to your own plain sight as you engage the painting. And this is what it looks like for God to tear open the heavens at Advent. This is the realization of Isaiah's hope. But the mountains didn't quake. There's no pillar of fire. Instead, Jesus' arrival, in a sense, was hidden. And so it is with Jesus' arrival in our own lives. In the midst of the darkness, at the very bottom of the pit, Jesus can feel so distant, so hidden. But the hope of Advent is that even though God remains hidden, he is nonetheless present in our lives and often working in unexpected ways. And I think to some degree, like we understand this, think of a time when you were in the dark crying out, where are you, God? Or like the priest, God, are you deaf? Do you hear my prayers? For many of us, after we've made it through the darkness, we can look back and see, oh yeah, you know what? God was there with me. He was guiding me, helping me in unexpected ways. And often it's only in hindsight that we can see the presence of God at work in our own lives. But God is nonetheless with us here in the darkness. But Advent is not only, uh, Advent not only reminds us that Jesus is here with us now, but it reminds us of our ultimate hope, that Jesus will one day return at his second Advent to completely eliminate the darkness. The things of this world can't bear the weight of our hope, but Jesus' advent provides us with a hope that transcends this life. In the words of Revelation, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and, the, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Or elsewhere in Isaiah, it says, Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Or Paul, in 1 Corinthians, he says this, Those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed, for our, our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? And that is the hope of Advent. And many of us, myself included, have lost sight of the hope of the second coming. We've played an emphasis, we've placed an emphasis on the already to the exclusion of the not yet. We've put our hope in what God will do in this life over what God will do in the life to come. Very few Gen X and younger Christians in America think on a regular basis about the hope of Jesus' return and live as if it's an imminent reality in our eye. John Mark Comer, an author and pastor, says, hope that doesn't look over the horizon to the life to come is not Christian hope at all. It's more like secular humanism with a twist of Christianity. 
Or as the Apostle Paul puts in 1 Corinthians 15, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be pitied. The writings of the New Testament are saturated with the hope of Jesus' return. And during this Advent season, we take heed of the power of living into that hope. So your darkness will one day be redeemed as Jesus makes all things new. As we cry out to God when he doesn't intervene now, it's as though he's whispering to us here, saying, I will one day tear open the heavens and redeem all of your pain. I have not forgotten your suffering. I will restore all that you have lost. And that is a hope that we have at Advent. So what does it look like for us to live in between the two Advents, between Jesus' first and second coming? Well, I think, first of all, we need to recognize that not uh, everything has yet been realized. All is not yet well. But in the midst of the darkness, we need to fully express our pain and our lament to God. But at the very same time, with hope, trust that Jesus is with us and working in hidden and unexpected ways. So it's both. It's both pouring ourselves out to God, but at the same time hoping, despite what we see, that God is with us and he's working with us in unexpected ways. For those of us who are doing well, we need to enter into the pain of those around us and be an incarnate presence of hope. Find those who are hurting, who are hungry, who are in need and do justice and be merciful. And maybe you will be the vehicle of God's hidden presence in the lives of those around you. You know, if you live to learn with hope in this present darkness, I know that like many of you are setting up your Christmas lights or have already and putting the Christmas lights up on the tree. If you live, if you learn to live with hope in the present darkness, your life can be like the lights on your Christmas tree. God's presence can shine through you to light up the darkness. But no matter how beautiful your life can become now, no matter how brightly sh God can shine through you now, lest we forget that it's still nighttime. Ultimately, here at Creekside, we should be a people who eagerly wait for the dawn, where Jesus' very presence, like the sun, will crest the horizon and eliminate all darkness and God will no longer be hidden at Jesus' return. For as it is written at the very last page of the Bible, very last page of Revelation, it says, they will see his face. So God will no longer be hidden, but we shall see his face, and night will be no more. The darkness will be gone. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And that is our hope. So will you pray with me? Lord God, thank you that you are here with us in the midst of our darkness, Lord God. You have come, Lord Jesus, to this. You tore open the heavens and you're here with us now. But working in hidden and kind of mysterious ways, Lord God, let us trust in that. Let us pour ourselves out to you, but trust that you are nonetheless working. But let us also look over the horizon to the life to come, to the hope that you have for us, that even when you don't intervene now in our lives, Lord God, um, that one day you'll make all things new. God of hope, may you fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in you, so that we may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, we, uh, each week we're going to take a moment during Advent to have some uh, reflection and response. And this week, we're going to reflect on the fact that through Jesus' incarnation and the Holy Spirit's indwelling, we have access to God's hope in the midst of trouble. 
So the question is, where have you encountered this hope in recent days or weeks? Where do you need it now? And as you reflect on these questions, I'm going to invite up uh, JD up here. Um, you've seen him lead worship and play bass. He's been one of my very good friends for quite a while now. He's going to share a little bit about his story and how he experienced hope in his life. So will you welcome him as he comes on up? Creekside, how's it going? I'm going to share a little bit about my story, and I'm going to try to do my best to uh, keep it concise, but just talking on the subject of hope and just growing up, and I think my story starts, I was born in July of 1993, and I grew up in Cool, California, then moved to Auburn, I'm a foothill baby, and uh, I unfortunately, like many others, maybe in my generation, probably a lot in this room as well, was a child of divorce, my parents split when I was eight years old, and my world shattered. It was a foundational thing. What was safe, what was warm, what was supposed to be my stability, and supposed to be this family unit in which I was to draw my safety and identity and some normalcy and to know what's coming the next weekend, what's coming the next day, what's going to be home when I, when I show up from school. Um, it shifted all the time. And it, with, with this, this became this wave of pain, which we've all experienced, maybe not through divorce, but we all are very accustomed to pain, kind of what Steve was alluding to. We know what it tastes like. We know what it feels like. We know what it does to our body. And I, like all of us do, had to find a way to deal with the pain. I had to find a way to cope. And for me, coping was to run. It was to numb. It was to check out. It was to put on a smile and still be okay and still be able to make sure others around me were feeling okay and make sure others around me didn't know my own pain, so I internalized it. And I would go away and I would make believe my own stories and I would escape into fantasies and into dreams and into whatever just to run away from the pain but I began to see that this hope that was still here and if we could pause for a moment and when I say hope if we could personify this hope if we can give it a face if we could give it a name if we can kind of make it this hope a character in the story so this hope it was supposed to be a part of this but all of a sudden there was this separation between what I knew and I heard every Sunday through Sunday school and what my family taught me of this good heavenly father, this good God who was supposed to take care of me and did take care of me and I knew him, but I also knew this other side of the reality, this pain. Why would there this be this good God? Why would there be this loving family unit? Why would I go through this life if only to be met with this other side of the pain? What was going to sustain this hope? How did this hope become a reality? How did this hope manifest itself and actually be a good friend of mine and not be this thing that was always seemingly just out of reach? So I grew up with this childhood dilemma that a lot of us have, and this led to my teenage years where that, that hopelessness and that kind of um, dissonance turned into this teenaged angst, and that angst bred to this sort of dependence and this reliance upon myself, and it was, if this isn't it, if the church isn't it, if, if God seemingly can't be this thing that is going to sustainably get me through this next season, then I got to find it in myself. So I found weed, I found pornography, I found this desire to be in a relationship just to have some sort of like, this has got to be it, this is what a marriage should be. Once I find that person, it's all going to be okay, I'm going to figure it out. 
that's going to be the thing that's going to carry me on. But sure enough, that didn't do it either. And so this pendulum in my life began to form, and I began to swing. And it was through one side of the pendulum was radical dedication and this devotion to the church and this establishment and thinking, surely, surely it has to be God's work through church. I have to have an approval from my pastor. He's going to tell me what to do. He's going to give me my identity. He's going to give me everything I need to get through this life because I don't know what it is. So surely someone else does. But then I began to see like, oh, that's not it either. So I'd swing the pendulum back the other way. Well, surely it's through just wanting to be a boxcar riding hobo eating a tin of beans, you know. I just wanted to live the Jack Kerouac life and be a musician and be out on the road. Surely it was through getting high. Surely it was through a relationship. Surely it was through something else that wasn't this goody-goody two-shoes Christian life. But when those two things kept going back and forth, I didn't have any resolve. Over here on the church side, I was still left with like, okay, yeah, I'm doing all the right things. I'm a good kid. I'm a good guy. I'm up on stage. I'm doing all the right things. I'm checking the boxes. But why do I still feel this angst and emptiness? On the other side, it was, okay, I can feel numb and it can escape and I can forget about my worries and I can tap into fantasy land and I can live this elusive, euphoric life that doesn't actually exist. But when that ends... I'm still left empty, and so neither satisfied. And that led me in this pendulum swing, and right at the crux of that pendulum swing when I was 20 years old, on a hot summer night in June in 2014, I was riding my motorcycle back home from work, and I got hit by a drunk driver. I ended up losing my leg. And in that time, everything changed, and nothing changed at all. Everything changed in the sense that I would be permanently disabled. My life had been altered. I'm an amputee. I'm going to literally have to learn how to walk again. But nothing changed because I knew exactly what it would take to get through and to survive. I grit my teeth. I bared down. I put on a smile. And I just internalized it. And I wrestled silently. But it was this hope that still carried me through. And I knew this hope existed. I knew his name. I knew what he would do. I knew that he got me through that season, but even still, in that hope, I still wanted to keep him just at arm's length enough because I didn't trust him. Because I knew he would get me through so I could literally survive to see another day, but I didn't really trust him that he had my best intentions in mind. Why would a God want to put me through something like this, put us through something like this? Why is there so much darkness and angst and unresolved tension in this world? Why is this all happening? And why would I trust someone like that? Why would I trust this hope? And so the pendulum swung back the other way, but I never could escape it. That pendulum led me and drove me further and further away, drove me to different states, drove me to Oregon, drove me back home after Oregon, after the time ran out, after I had all my fun and the high faded and I was suicidal and depressed and absolutely lost. Then I moved home and I swung the pendulum back the other way and I got so involved in church and I was such a good boy. I was so involved, I was so devoted, but still there was this emptiness because it wasn't scratching the itch. It wasn't answering these questions. These men and women couldn't help me. They could help me in a lot of ways, but they couldn't resolve this thing that I knew was knocking at the door. And so that led to years and years until finally, years after that even, the pendulum was in the middle and I was always in this tension because I wasn't enjoying my sin. I couldn't enjoy it because I knew there was something better, but I couldn't fully find my purpose and my fulfillment in this establishment because it didn't, it wasn't answering the things that I, I wanted to be answered. 
And so that led to finally, after many years, hope broke in. And I avoided it, and I knew his name, and I still didn't want to look him in the eye. And hope, and I knew where it was leading me to, was leading me to that door on the other side of this dark road. The road, the rock bottom road, the cul-de-sac, the dead end that I had become so accustomed with, the darkness, I found comfort in it. I craved the darkness because I knew the darkness. It was familiar. Why get my hopes up? Why do I have any sort of optimism? Why would I have that when I know what to expect in this dark cavern? But I knew that I needed help. And I, there's tons of practical things. It was recovery, it was support, it was going to therapy, it was all these tools that God gives us to finally face ultimately myself and ultimately allow God in. Hope had been reaching his hand in my life, asking me just to trust in him and to take his hand and to fully let go of the reins, to release the tension from my bare white knuckles as I grasped for life and anything that could get me through to the next phase. Even though I full well knew that I wasn't fully submitting, I just tipped my hat to hope and I said, thank you, I'll be on my way now. And I was miserable, but finally hope broke in. And his name was Jesus. And I grew up in the Christian church, and that, time, that name had rolled off my tongue. I had sang it from the stage for so many years. But finally, Jesus broke in. And he showed me that he was with me through the childhood times. He was with me through my accident. And even though I knew it cognitively, I wouldn't allow the reality to settle into my heart. But he showed me that he, too, was well acquainted with grief. He, too, knew full well. And he didn't watch from afar as a cold-hearted dictator, but he wept beside me, and he invited me in. And so that is my story, and that is my encouragement to you guys. We're all going through something. Yeah, you may not have, I know a couple guys in here with one leg, but most of you have two, <laughs> right? So you may have your own story. You're a father, you're a mother, you're a brother, you're a sister, you're a student, you're a teacher. You've all lost somebody. We're all going through something. And what I found in my encouragement to you is as hope wants to, as Jesus wants to bring us to this hope, he's going to lead us to the door which we're avoiding the most. And that is the door of pain. That is the door, the very things that we are afraid to say to ourselves in our car alone. What truth is that? What pain is that? What fear is that? What thing is it? But to allow him to where you're at, to just say, God, where I'm at right now, I invite you into. It doesn't have to be pretty. It probably won't be. But to invite him in and to wrestle and to let him in exactly where you're at. And that is my Evan story. So thank you guys.